Be in Luke chapter 14 this morning. We're going to be in verses 15 through 24. You may remember that this this is part of a, a section that began back in chapter 14, verse one with a dinner that Jesus was invited to. This was a meal on the Sabbath day. He was invited to the home of a Pharisee, and there was a man there that needed healing. And so there's this, uh, again, a lot of controversy surrounding uh, the Sabbath day, uh, healing on the Sabbath day, a lot of controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees. And so Jesus confronts them in their hypocrisy, in, in their the deception of their own mind, and he heals the man and he points out to them that, that they would act for the good of their animal or they would act for the good of their son. So, so why are they watching Jesus so closely to see if he heals someone on the Sabbath? And if you remember, Jesus left his opponents in utter silence. And we said there's, there's a note of condemnation in that silence. What could they say? They don't have God's law on their side. They don't have love of neighbor on their side. They don't have love of God on their side. So they are, they are dead in, in silence there. And so Jesus goes on in this, this dinner. That's how the dinner starts, right? And then as, as people are coming in and Jesus is watching them and observing them, he notices that they're sort of uh, jockeying for the best seat in the house, which would have been right next to the host. Whoever's hosting the party, you want to be considered the greatest guest there. So if you can end up next to him, that's, that's great. And so Jesus, again, is, is calling them to humble themselves, to not exalt themselves, because in the end, God humbles those who exalt themselves. But he, he exalts the humble, and we saw that he did that perfectly in Jesus Christ, who humbled himself, yet at following the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, he's exalted far above every, he's given a name that is above every name, and, and at that name every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And so Jesus is giving this, this scathing rebuke to the Pharisees and to the lawyers that are there. The lawyers would be experts in the, in the Old Testament law. And Jesus rebukes them, but, but the Pharisees are so proud that this rebuke seems to fly right over their head, as if Jesus are, is, is condemning someone else. I remember one time being in a staff meeting, and our, and our boss was, was addressing a, a particular issue, and even though he was addressing it in a larger meeting, it was, it was obvious to everyone in the room, like, okay, we know, we know you're talking about this guy. And then after the meeting, the guy comes to me and he's like, what was that all about? And I'm like, you, man, that's what, that's what all that was about. And so that's what the Pharisees are, are wrestling with here. There, there's one of these guys in, in the room who speaks up in verse 15. And I think he thinks he's going to ease the tension. I think he, he's assuming, sorry, I may be loose, have a loose connection here. Let me see if I can do something about that. We'll try that. If that happens, again, I can go to this. But in verse 15, there's a guy who speaks up, and he thinks that he can ease the tension. He thinks that he can sort of smooth this over. You're right, Jesus. Blessed is everyone who will uh, eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus' answer teaches us this. We see this our first point this morning. Only those who respond to the invitation enjoy the messianic banquet. We see that in verses 15 through 20. So this guy gives what is a a true pronouncement, but ultimately it is a misguided pronouncement. 
He says, blessed is everyone who, who eats bread in the kingdom of God. This is likely in response to what Jesus said at the end of verse 14. He was calling the Pharisees to not just invite those over who could repay them. Instead, they ought to have the the poor, the lame, the blind, the crippled. You ought to have them over because they can never repay you. Well, Well, why should they do that if they can never be repaid by these folks? Well, it's because God will reward you at the resurrection of the just. So this talk of resurrection sort of uh, piques this guy's interest in this, this banquet that's, that is to come. But ultimately, the way I understand Jesus' response and rebuke and the way he answers this guy's question, it seems like this is a, a toast to himself and his fellow Pharisees. Yes, Jesus, we will be at the resurrection of the just, and we will be blessed because we will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Ultimately, this is a pronouncement of ignorance. They are brushing off the pronouncement of warning that Jesus has given to the Pharisees, that if you exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled. So don't exalt yourself, or you won't see the kingdom. And this guy says, I can't wait to see the kingdom. You can imagine the other Pharisees in the room sort of nodding their heads, amen, that's right. That's right, brother. We look forward to that day together. But we've seen over and over in Luke that Jesus is is always interested in undermining the self-righteous assumptions of the Pharisees. He wants to erode their self-confidence, erode their confidence in their own abilities to earn God's love, to earn God's righteousness, to earn God's approval. And, And he wants to undermine, and already has begun that process, their assumption that not only will they be at this banquet, but they will be at the seat of honor with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jesus has already said, you know what? There's going to be wailing and gnashing of teeth. When you see that people from north and south and east and west have come from far, and they're the ones that are in the banquet, and you are left out of the banquet. So Jesus sets out to demonstrate to them that, that, that if they persist in this same path, they will not see the kingdom And they will not see the kingdom because they despise the king. They will not see the kingdom because they despise the king. Look there in verse 16. He begins this story. But he said to them, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent out his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field. And I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So in order to demonstrate that these these Pharisees are going to miss the kingdom because they despise the king, Jesus tells this this parable, this story about a banquet. And if you look at the description of this banquet, it's a great banquet and many people were invited. This is a big feast. This isn't just having your neighbor over for a cup of coffee. And the invitations go out in verse 16. The host sends a servant out to give the invitation to this this banquet. And this would have been a a celebratory uh, banquet there that was meant to be a feast, not just to, hey, let's, let's get a quick snack and then 
we'll, uh, you know, we'll run our errands for the day. This is a feast. This is a banquet. This is a celebration. This is a, a party. You know, a friend of mine used to say that, that some people eat to live and other people live to eat. You know, and it might be spiritual to say like, oh, no, I just eat to live. It's just fuel for my body. And so, but at the same time, it's also sort of an overreaction to say, well, I should live to eat. But somewhere in the middle there, there's this idea that food in the Bible is, is a celebration. It, there can be times for eating that are, that are for celebration, for joy. In fact, Isaiah talks about this banquet that's coming. One day, this future banquet, when the Lord will lavish a feast on His people, it will be a time of joy and a time of celebration. Isaiah 25, uh, beginning in verse 6, says this, The Lord of hosts will pre- prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, and it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited." Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. So there's this this future banquet, this future feast that the Lord lavishes on His people. And this is is a source of, of hope, of longing for God's people, that God will again dwell with His people. Isaiah 25 says he will remove this this veil, this shroud of darkness that is over creation. It covers the world. He will swallow up death once and for all. He will wipe away every tear. And and God's people will exclaim, this is what we've been waiting for. The deliverance, the salvation that God provides. We will exclaim something like, "The, the Lord has come. And He has delivered us not only from the penalty of sin, Not only from the power of sin in this life, but we will exclaim that He has delivered us fully and finally from the very presence of sin. And we will celebrate and we will worship God. And this is our anticipation, but this is is one thing. as, As Israel studied their scriptures, they would have been longing, they would have been looking forward to this sort of banquet, to this sort of feast. And the problem is most of the Pharisees in the room are, or all as far as we know, are assuming that they will be there. That it's only a matter of time until they get to share in the banquet with the Lord. But just as Jesus warned a different audience in, in previous texts, they won't be there. They'll be on the outside looking in. They'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth as they are excluded. And they watch people from every nation flood in and enjoy this banquet. But why? Why, why do the Pharisees miss the banquet? Why does Jesus warn them that if they persist in this sort of attitude, that they will miss the banquet? We've, we forget sometimes that the Pharisees were highly regarded It's easy for us to pick on them and make fun of them, but they were highly regarded in Israel. Well, they missed the banquet, Jesus says, because they have higher priorities, and because they have higher priorities, they dishonor the host of the party. 
So as the invitations go out in verse 17, the excuses come in beginning in verse 18. So there are some some cultural things at at play in this parable that that can sort of help us understand the story as Jesus tells it. It was common for some of these big banquets to send out an invitation ahead of time. Sort of a a clear your calendar uh, uh, invitation. Save the date, so to speak. And and the recipient at that point would say, yes, I'm going to be there, or no, I can't be there. Uh, Typically, if it's a big banquet and it's a host of high honor, they're going to say yes. They're going to make this happen. So the first invitation goes out. And presumably, everybody has said yes to this invitation. You know, this was important back in ancient Israel. You couldn't, you couldn't cook half a cow and then have half the people you thought show up, they were going to show up and then do what we did with the potluck or the barbecue food last week and just, hey, we'll freeze it and serve it again. You can't do that in ancient Israel. So you need a commitment. You need a firm commitment with this first invitation. Hey, go out. Let me know who all is coming. And so then as the day arrived, when the feast was completely ready and the host was ready to receive guests, the servant would go out again into the village and say, all right, the time has come. The feast is prepared. That's a second invitation that goes out. And now come and enjoy the feast. The folks would change into some more uh, probably nicer clothes and then go to the banquets. And the ones who had said yes initially were honor-bound to show up. They they were bound by their very word. I said I would be there. He's killed a cow on my behalf, so I'm going to show up and I'm going to be there. So as we look at these excuses, it's important to know that these excuses are scandalous. These excuses are a slap in the face and a way of dishonoring the host. And... It's true just by the fact that they don't show up. But it's also true in the fact that I think we'll see these are actually really, really bad excuses. So let's look at them together. The first one is is the excuse of of real estate. But they all began to make, alike, began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. So the first guy has bought some land, and his excuse is he's got to go see the land. Now, again, there's, there's cultural things at play here. It would have been really highly unlikely in this, this culture to buy anything sight unseen. Right? You couldn't hop on Zillow. Some of you, I, I put an offer on my house before I saw it. Barb saw my house before I did. Right? We do that sometimes. But that would not happen in this culture. You can't hop on Zillow, peruse the photos, say, oh, this will be a good investment. I never really need to even see this land. I'll just buy it. And in 10 years, it'll be worth more than it is now. And I can sell it. So this is an insulting excuse to the host. This is nonsensical. And notice he doesn't say, some people as studying this text, they're trying to say, well, actually, he's not saying he won't be there. He's just saying he's running late. But that's not what he says. He says, please excuse me from the party. Please excuse me from the banquet. His priorities are elsewhere. He's not coming. He's not coming. The next guy, there in verse 19, he says, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please 
have me excused. Again, this, this comes off as sort of the same thing. You've got the, if you're going to make an excuse, at least have the order in the right order. You're not going to buy a field and then look at it. Or you're not going to buy oxen and then see if they can actually pull a plow. You know, so this is like saying, well, sorry, I can't come to your party. I just bought a used car and I've got to go see if it can start. I've got to go test drive it. Typically in this culture, a seller would go and a, a seller would actually set a time apart in order to have anybody that's interested in buying these oxen, this, this team of oxen, will yoke them together and demonstrate to you that they can pull the plow, they can function together. And besides all that, if he's already bought the oxen, then what's the rush? Why does he need to go see them at the time of the banquet? They're already his. They're going to perform how they're going to perform. So this excuse likewise falls flat. And besides all of that, an animal should not have taken um, priority over the, the invitation to be at this banquet. So this man likewise honors the host, and he asks again to be completely excused. The third guy says this, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So it seems to be a little bit of a, an elevation in, in, in the offensiveness. You know, the first two guys says, at least said, please have me excused. This guy just announces that he cannot come. You know, it's unclear why his marriage would, would prevent him from attending the banquet. Um, a lot of commentaries were suggesting that maybe he was uh, demonstrating a lack of what you might call a lack of self-control, being a little bit inappropriate here in discussing things in public that he shouldn't by saying, you know what, I'm going to stay home with my wife and be faithful to the command to be fruitful and multiply. I cannot come to your banquets. And though there's certainly nothing wrong, obviously there's something to rejoice in the one flesh union enjoyed in marriage, this is not a good excuse to miss the banquets. It's not a good reason to miss the banquets. So these are all bad excuses that bring dishonor upon the host of the meal. Now, we don't really live in an honor culture. So, so it's hard for us to grasp some of this dishonoring the host. We live in more of a, a victim culture at this point. But we might try to sort of grasp the offensiveness of what is going on here by imagining a wedding you know, maybe you're going to get married and you send out the invitations and you say, hey, listen, this is, we're doing a really expensive meal here. Please RSVP and please let us know if you want the chicken or the steak. And you RSVP and you want the steak, which is going to cost 80 bucks a plate. And the day of the wedding, you text and you say, hey, listen, I'm really sorry, but I've got to go get my oil changed. I can't be at your wedding. And not only you, but everybody that's been invited to the wedding does the same thing. Did you, did you notice at the beginning of verse 18? But they all alike. Everybody that had accepted the first invitation, they all alike failed. They all began to make excuses. Imagine the bride and groom in an empty hallway with hundreds of $80 steak dinners there. That's the dishonor that we're trying to, to capture. 
But the fact that they all alike do this, I think, I think is implying that what we have is just three examples of excuses. Not just every excuse that came in. And so Jesus is making this point to the Pharisees that, that you assume that you're going to be there. But you have other priorities. You actually dishonor the host. You dishonor the king. You're prioritizing the wrong sorts of things. So certainly it's true. Blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus is warning the guests, again, the Pharisees and the scribes, the lawyers that are there, they've received the invitation. that They desire, in some sense, this kingdom but they're dishonoring God by refusing to respond to the invitation that has come in the servant, Jesus Christ. They're rejecting Christ. So according to this this parable that Jesus is telling here, the pious, honorable Pharisees at, at the root, at the heart, are actually guilty of committing the offense of worshiping the creation rather than worshiping the Creator. They have higher priorities besides God. They're living for and seeking life and things like whatever their excuses are, real estate or money or relationships. And they're refusing God's gracious invitation in favor of whatever else they want to prioritize. And Jesus says you're in danger. You don't want to assume that you're going to be at this banquets. But thankfully, this isn't, this isn't the end of the story. Right? This isn't the end of Jesus' parable. At this point, as far as we've read, the feast is, is ready. The invitations have gone out, and now all this food is prepared. The banquet is ready, and nobody's coming. But the host, praise the Lord, is committed to having a full house for this particular banquet. So that brings us to point number two this morning. The banquet will be filled by the helpless and those who are far off. We see see a change there in verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. So the servant comes back with the excuses, and this understandably provokes the the host to anger. Again, they've they've dishonored the host. The invitees had agreed to come, and, and all alike began to make excuses. They've all backed out of of their agreement to come. So we can imagine as Jesus is developing this, this parable for the folks in the room, they're, they're wondering, so what, what is the host going to do? You know, maybe the self-righteous Pharisees are saying, well, well, clearly the host should just postpone the banquet. Clearly the host should just wait till we're ready to, to be at the banquet. Well, that's not what happens. He doesn't reschedule so the original guest can, can make it at a different day, so they can make it on their own terms and in their own timing. He doesn't do that. He, 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 instead, he sends out the invitation to a different audience. And we said last week, this would have been a surprising uh, audience for the Pharisees. 
They thought that part of their holiness and righteousness was to be separate from the the lame, the blind, the poor, the weak. But we see that the host sends out his servant specifically to what, what we might call the hopeless, helpless, and despised of society. You see it there in the middle of verse 21. Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. Again, this would have been shocking for the Pharisees. Remember, they, they, they thought their purity was wrapped up in excluding these sorts of people. But the servant is called to go specifically to them, to, to bring them in. And of course, the poor, the, but, well, the poor, yes, but specifically the, the blind, the lame, the crippled, they would need to be brought in. They would not be capable of bringing themselves in. I think it's a, a beautiful picture of God's grace. He brings in those who are helpless, who can never think of bringing themselves in. It's also a picture in the parable that, that God's grace will not be defeated by unbelief, even the unbelief of the religious leaders of Israel. God's grace prevails by carrying in those who could not carry themselves. Remember that Jesus has already excoriated the, the religious leaders for, for not serving this, this demographic of people. They were catering to those who would be willing to pay them back. He said that instead of inviting rich neighbors, they should invite who? The poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Those who would not be able to return the payments. And that's who the invitations go to. Those who would not be able to return the payments. We've also seen as we've walked through the Gospel of Luke that that the evidence of the arrival of God's kingdom in Jesus Christ is is what? That the poor have good news preached to them, that the blind see, that the lame walk, the crippled are healed. They're being restored. We've seen in the ministry of Jesus Christ that He's already begun what He said will happen in, in an ultimate sense at the judgment, that He's lifting up the lowly. And He's humbling the proud. It's the lowly who were lifted up by Christ in His earthly ministry and can, who, who can long and look forward to and see the glory of a kingdom where the blind see and the poor are no longer considered castaways and the lame walk and the crippled shout for joy because they are restored. It's also... Likely that Jesus uses this, th- these people to picture uh, the poor or, or to picture the helpless. To picture helpless sinners who can never rescue themselves. And the reason I say that is because back I- earlier in Luke when Jesus is confronted, why are you sharing a meal with tax collectors and sinners? What did Jesus say? He said, it's not the well who need a physician, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So it's true in ancient Israel. It was true for the nation of Israel. And it's true today that those who are receptive to the message of Christ are those who recognize their complete helplessness before God. It's those who recognize their need for God's grace. 
you this morning and I this morning must remember that, that we are totally incapable of paying anything to the Lord so that He would owe us something. We are the helpless. We are the weak. If, you, if you're in Christ this morning, it's not helpful for you to say, well, I'm, I'm the exception to the rule. I know God didn't say very many wise or strong. I'm the exception. No, no, we're not. We're the ones that had to be brought in. And so the way to Christ, the path to forgiveness in Christ is, is not self-congratulation like the man who spoke up and said, oh, yes, I, I've got some sentimentality here. I've got some true words. I despise the king, but I'm just going to have these religious platitudes and kind of pat myself on the back that I'll be in the kingdom. That's not the path to Christ. You can't be patting yourself on the back and come to Jesus Christ. You must admit that you are unworthy to be in God's presence and trust that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only means by which you might stand before God. And not only that, but but be in this, this, this banquet with the Lord. He serves His people. Believe that only through the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to you on the basis of of your trust and reliance on Him can you partake in this heavenly feast. See, Christianity, as most of you are aware, but it's all about Christ. It centers on Christ. It's not about if I can clean myself up enough to, to earn my entrance into God's presence. And so Jesus comes with this message that I've come to save sinners, not, not those who are righteous. Of course, that's sort of hyperbolic. The, the, the Pharisees aren't righteous, but they think they are, so they don't see Christ for who He is. And the Pharisees despise Jesus for this message, that He's going to those who are completely and utterly helpless. And they dishonor Him through their dismissiveness. They don't hear His message because they're blinded by their own self-adulation and self-promotion. You, know, you may remember back, I think it's Luke chapter 2, when Joseph and Mary are bringing Jesus to the temple. He's only eight days old at, at that point, but there's a man there named Simeon who had been promised by the Lord that you will not die till you see the consolation of Israel, or you see the Savior, you see the Messiah. And when Simeon saw Jesus, he, he took him in his arms and, and he blessed Jesus. And, but one of the things he says is, Jesus will be the cause of the fall and rise of many in Israel. Well, what's he doing? He's humbling those who exalt themselves. And he's exalting the humble. We've seen that very promise that Simeon said coming to fruition in the ministry of Jesus. Those who exalt themselves like the Pharisees are being brought low. And those who are low and they know it and they recognize it and they turn to Christ for grace, they are welcomed into the kingdom. And hey, you may have a seat of honor next to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Though the religious leaders, the Pharisees in Israel by and large, rejected Jesus. Most of the the population in Israel trusted Jesus. John reminds us in in his gospel this, that that Jesus came into his own and his own received him not, but to those who did receive him. He gave them the right to become children of God. So those who recognized their need and turned to Christ, he gave them the right to be children of God. So as we come back then to to the narrative here, to Jesus' story, 
the poor, the helpless, the blind, the lame. They've been brought into this, this banquet, but there's still empty seats there in, in verses 22 and 23. He says, um, And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. What's been done, what's been asked has been done. We've went out and we found the lame and the blind and, and the, the crippled to come in and, and fill the seats, but there's still room. So, so then what's the command? Go out further. Go out beyond the village. Go to the, to the highways and the, the hedges. In other words, ex- expand the search for people that can come into the banquets. Go outside the boundaries of the village if you have to. Go out in all directions and implore anyone who would come in to come into this feast that I have prepared. See, the host, we understand him to be God. God will fill the house. The banquet table will be full. The, the, the feast will happen as it is scheduled. And as we've seen with the lame and the blind, and as we see with going out to the highways and the hedges, the table will be filled, but it will be filled with a surprising uh, demographic. What a turn of events. The, the Pharisees making excuses for that, why they can't attend the banquet, while those who are helpless and those who are far off are being compelled to come in and to partake of this feast. I think the idea is just go Go out, go to everyone. I think Gentiles are included in this, this, this tax. It's a picture of the gospel going not only to you know, the lame and the weak in Israel, the humble in Israel, the, the remnant, but also to the Gentiles. Go to the highways and to the hedges. It's a picture of the gospel going to the nations. And we've seen Jesus' warning of this over and over and over again. Israel will reject their Messiah and the hope of the gospel will by and large go to the nations. Now we see in Acts, Israelites coming to Christ. Praise the Lord. There's priests coming to Christ. That's that's good. But the the warning is here. If you reject your Savior, the, the message is going to the nations. In fact, this shouldn't have been a huge surprise. We looked at Isaiah 25 earlier, and what did it say? The Lord is preparing a banquet, this feast for all peoples. The Gentiles will be brought in. So Jesus comes proclaiming uh, the kingdom, proclaiming salvation to His people Israel. But it was always God's good design and intention for the hope of the gospel to go to the nations. This is God working out salvation history exactly the way He intended to work out salvation history. That's Paul's point in Romans 9-11. through 11. Now, We can't tell God how to orchestrate history. Look, look at how He's doing it. We should just fall down and worship Him because of His wisdom and how He has brought it about. So they expand the search, but also the, these highways and hedges become important for another reason. This is again where the low, the low in society would be on the highways and around the hedges of the city. This is the places where the, the beggars and the, the vagrants and the prostitutes would gather. They would stay along the highways and, and many times weren't even allowed in, in the village where the first invitation would have 
gone out. Again, what a turn of events. With our natural thinking about how things should work, and, and again, this is before we know God and know His Word, we might assume that it would only be the pious Pharisees at the feast. That it would only be them, the elite of society. We might expect them the banquet door to be closed once the Pharisees are in there and all the beggars and the blind and the poor are out front kind of knocking on the door. Can I get some scraps from this meal? Yet this text reminds us that God has specifically targeted the lowly, the sick, the despised, the unrighteous to be invited in. There's no one too wretched if they're willing to humble themselves and turn to Christ to be counted a friend at this banquet table and to be in the kingdom of God. It's interesting that the idea is to urge them to come in or to compel them to come in. Those hanging around the outskirts, those who know they're despised by society and, and, and oftentimes is that even unwelcome to come into town, they would hardly believe that this is a legitimate invitation. Once you come in, we've got this huge feast prepared. They, they can name some, some royal guy in the city who, who they would recognize and say, he's invited you to, to this meal. They might be skeptical at first. They would know the social standard is that, you know, if you come, you're supposed to repay this somehow, and I can't repay it. So why, why would I come? I don't want to put myself further in debt. I don't want to further enslave myself to those who are rich around me. They would need to be compelled. They would need to be urged. They would need to be convinced that this is indeed a free offer. Just, just come. Just come. The feast is prepared. There's nothing you can do to, to repay it. Just come to the feast. It's interesting that this is where the, the parable portion of our text ends. We'll look at the last verse here in a second. The servant is out. He's going to the highways and the hedges, and he's calling, again, the beggars and the, the vagrants and the unrighteous to come in. And, it, and then the story just ends. And I think it's, it's left open-ended on purpose. Following the death and resurrection of Jesus, he would send out his apostles to, yes, begin in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, but then to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. The church, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets who were given that commission to go and proclaim the gospel to every creature, we continue in the work of spreading the gospel. We compel and we, we urge people to believe the gospel, to turn from their sins. As a church, we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Paul says it's as if the Lord is making His appeal through us. As we proclaim Christ, the Lord uses the proclamation of the gospel to draw people to faith in Christ. We've been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. As God makes His appeal through us, we hold out the hope of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And it is an astounding reality. The way the Pharisees would be shook by this, this feast and who was invited. We're reminded of this astounding reality of the gospel that sin had separated each and every one of us from the God who gives life. That we have rebelled against Him both in outright just breaking the law and in at times acting in self-righteousness and 
and in our pride, assuming that God doesn't care that we broke the law because we've made up for it in so many good ways. Isn't God blessed to have somebody like me on his side? The just penalty of this pride and the, the transgression of God's law is death. That's why Jesus had to die on a cross. He was nailed to that cross, taking the penalty of sin for us. And we, we urge you, we, we urge everyone, turn to the Lord and come to know Him and be forgiven of sin. Repent of your sins, turn from those, and come to know Christ. And look forward to this kingly banquet. It seems too good to be true. Like a, like a beggar on the outskirts of town invited to a rich man's home for a free meal. It seems too good to be true. But Christ and His gospel has come to the needy, to those who would humble themselves and turn from their sin and trust in Christ. And the alternative is terrifying. Look at verse 24. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. I, I said that I think Jesus ended the, the parable at verse 21, and now he turns and he applies the parable to the crowd. That you there, I tell you, it's, it's plural. This isn't a host talking to a servant anymore. This is Jesus talking to a group of men. You know, depending on what part of the country you're from, you might write y'all or you guys, yous guys. In the Ozarks, they say youans. This is Jesus turning and applying the parable to, to the crowd. He's breaking from the story, looking the guests in the eye and warning them that they will miss the banquet if they continue on the path of self-righteousness. He has made it plain. He's made it plain over and over and over again that they are in danger. They're running the risk of fully and finally missing the banquets. And if the banquet is missed, it's not for lack of invitation. It's not for lack of God calling them to come in. They will be left without excuse. And again, the gospel will go to the nations. So what does this mean, mean for us? As I think about a, a man who sort of makes a, a sentimental, religious proclamation, one of the things we should do, I think, in response to this text is examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Examine yourself to see if you have a misplaced confidence in your salvation. You see, it's possible to, to, to be deceived in your own thinking because you, you, you love certain songs or you love the fellowship at church. We, we love those things. Those are good things. Those are not the ground of why you should be sure that you're, you're actually in Christ. It's possible for us, like this man in chapter 14, to say words that are true, but they don't actually apply to us. Blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Amen, brother. Well, it's possible for us to have these sort of religious platitudes and to be deceived. You know, there's lots of good questions to ask as you evaluate yourself. We could talk about fruit, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of your salvation. You know, there's lots of things you could, you could go to in, in 1 John and, and assess whether you've come to know Christ. I would encourage you to maybe speak with one of the, the elders if you have questions about your relationship with Christ and what that looks like. 
You know, if somebody invited you to church this morning, you could maybe ask them what that means. But specifically, I think this parable presses into one specific area where we might evaluate ourselves. Do we assume that God owes us something in return for our own goodness? Are we proud towards God? You know, they say that Benjamin Franklin was really close friends with the evangelist George Whitfield, And of course, Whitfield was a powerful preacher. But when Whitfield died, Benjamin Franklin wrote this, Mr. Whitfield used to pray for my conversion, but never had the satisfaction of believing that his prayers were heard. Can you hear the, the arrogance? Can you, hear, can you hear the audacity in Franklin's statements? It's a sort of attitude that Jesus has been warning about. This attitude of superiority. And this sort of attitude, it keeps you from the banquet. It keeps you from coming and and humbling yourself and coming to Christ. So the the religious, the high class, the well-dressed are left out of this banquet because what? They're trusting in themselves. They're trusting in themselves. They treat Jesus with contempt and would never want to be counted among the riffraff that ends up coming to this banquet. They're too good for that. You know, as you examine yourself this morning, I'd also comfort those of you who have come to Christ. And that if you see yourself as a, as a needy sinner, my only hope is found in Jesus Christ. If you truly desire the eternal feast and you are banking on His grace, you have pushed all your chips in on Jesus. You don't have to be then suspicious of God's love for you in Christ. God has demonstrated His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We can take confidence in God's love because He's shown it to us in Jesus Christ. And and if you're in Christ, you can have a firm confidence that you will one day enjoy Jesus' banquet. And that's exactly what Jesus says in verse 24. He says, this is my banquet. This is my banquet. For those in Christ, we enjoy many blessings of our salvation today, but we look forward to this heavenly banquet that's recorded for us, I think, in Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we long for that day. And we thank you that you have robed us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We were completely and utterly helpless, yet you have acted on our behalf. You have sent forth the gospel. For many in this room, they've heard that gospel, and the 
Holy Spirit, open their eyes to see the glory of it, to place and, and empower them to place their faith in the work of Christ. Lord, may you give a firm confidence to those who are in Christ. And Lord, may you rattle those who have a false assurance. May you again work in their hearts through the preaching of the word. Lord, may you be glorified in the way that we each respond to the word of God this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.